following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Please take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to the first chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 1. As you turn to Matthew's gospel, as we collectively, as a church, turn to Matthew's gospel, we focus our attention on this first chapter, and we turn to what Paul the Apostle calls the fullness of time, the fullness of time, or as one writer says, the right moment in human history when God's providential oversight of the events of the world had directed and prepared peoples and nations for the incarnation and ministry of Christ and for the proclamation of the gospel. This is the fullness of time, the apex, the high point of history. Even though it was the fullness of time, it was also one of the darkest of times. And I say that because it had been 400 years at least since God had spoken through a prophet in Israel. 400 years since the Spirit of God moved anyone to declare, thus says the Lord. As Proverbs 29 verse 18 says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people are out of control. That is... When there is no word from God, no light, no revelation from God, the people lose it. The people cast off restraint. That's because God's word is light. It pierces the darkness. It penetrates the darkness. It permeates darkened hearts and floods those hearts with light. So without any word from God for 400 years, you can imagine the state of the world and the state of Israel the people to whom God had spoken in the past. The law was there. The five books of Moses were there. But these books were in the hands of a dead religion. A religion known for its outward appearance and its inward emptiness. The last time God had spoken through anyone was 400 years prior. And one of the very last promises that God made to his people before these 400 years of silence came through the prophet Malachi. And this is what it said. This is how the Old Testament closed, essentially. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, 
The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The sun of righteousness will arise. And he will arise and bring healing in his wings. And so when we turn to Matthew chapter 1, we are turning to the sunrise. It's as though we turn our eyes to the eastern horizon at the dawn of the morning. And it's not long that we wait there and are eventually overwhelmed and overtaken with the warmth of the Son of Righteousness who brings healing to our souls. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. That's where we're at this morning. Matthew chapter 1. The dawn of the morning before one who is brighter than the midday sun appears on the scene of human history and forever changes human history. This is the king of creation coming to his creation to initiate and inaugurate a new creation. You might think that in coming to Matthew chapter 1, we are coming to a boring, uneventful portion of the word of God. After all, it's a list of dead people. A lot of them. A list of names that many of you would have a hard time pronouncing. But I'm here to inform you that when we come to Matthew chapter 1, we are coming to one of the most dramatic chapters in all of the Bible. Again, the historical context of Matthew chapter 1, 400 years of silence. Not a single word from God in four centuries. The religion is lifeless. Although the people of Israel are in their land, they are still slaves in their land. They are under Roman rule and oppression. And the small remnant of faithful believers that exists is waiting and probably almost despairing and probably wondering, will God's promise, will his word come to pass? Will he come to us as he said he would? And the answer of Matthew chapter 1 is a resounding yes. Yes, he is faithful. Yes, he will keep his word. Beloved, as we make our way through this chapter, there is so much to draw out and so much to unpack, but our time is obviously limited. And so I want to call your attention this morning to four lessons that Matthew chapter 1 teaches us. Matthew, this former tax collector, whose life was radically changed and wonderfully redeemed by the Christ he writes about, teaches us the following four lessons in this first chapter. He teaches us, number one, to adore the faithfulness of God. Number two, to admire the providence of God. Third, to revere the power of God. And he teaches us, fourthly, to treasure the love of God. And so first, in this first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew teaches us to adore the faithfulness of God. Look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This opening sentence is not just an introduction it is an announcement. 
It is an announcement from heaven that the promised one has come. He is here. God has kept his promises. God has kept his word. He is faithful to his word and he can never deny himself. Not only did God keep his promise, God sent his promise. His son, the son of righteousness, has risen, dawning on human history and forever changing human history. The appearing and dawning of this son of righteousness, Jesus Christ, is the dawn of the new creation. And I think Matthew alludes to that here in the very first verse. Notice how he begins. The book of the genealogy. Biblos, Genesis. The book of Genesis. That's what it is in the Greek. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. In the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this phrase, Biblos, Genesis, is found two times. And it's in the book of Genesis. Genesis 2.4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Same phrase in the Greek. And then again, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And so the only other time this phrase, Biblos Genesis, is used in the, the Bible is to describe the creation of the heavens and the earth and then the generation of Adam. And after him, the origin of Adam and his posterity. First century readers would have picked up on Matthew chapter one and would have made the connection immediately to the very first book of the Bible. Yes, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ in these first 17 verses. Yes, this is the book of the origin of Jesus Christ, his birth into this world, his beginning of ministry. But more than that, I think, and I stand in good standing with a lot of scholars who also believe that what Matthew's doing is he's describing that this book, these 28 chapters, are the genesis of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ coming to inaugurate and initiate his new creation. After all, he will allude to the new creation in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, when he says to his disciples, truly I say to you, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The phrase in the new world is literally in the regeneration, in the new birth of all things. When God comes, when the Son comes and makes all things new, and so The way the Old Testament began is how the New Testament begins with the first one was with the beginning. The New Testament begins with the new beginning, the new beginning. This is the new Adam. This is the last Adam, as Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the incarnate creator inaugurating and initiating his new creation. This is the Genesis, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. The very first identification for Jesus is the name Jesus here. Jesus. It's really the word Joshua. And as we're going to see in verse 21, it means Yahweh saves. 
Yahweh saves. But as we think of Joshua, we are immediately taken back hundreds of years in the past to the one who came after Moses. Moses was not the one to take the people into the promised land because of his sin. And God decreed, God ordained that another take his place and lead the people in conquest to conquer nations and to lead them into the land that God had promised them. And he did that. And I think what we are going to be confronted with as we're going to see this theme of a new exodus now throughout the next 28 weeks, 28 Sundays, is that this greater Joshua has come to bring us into a greater promised land than anything that we can find, anything we can find on earth. He will bring us into a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth. This Joshua, this Jesus will bring us in. He will be the one to conquer our enemies and bring us with him into the new heaven and the new earth. It says Jesus Christ, second title. Jesus Christ, that's not his last name. Just thought I'd make that clear. It's not his last name. That's his title. That's, that's what he is. He is the Christ the Old Testament word for Messiah. Every time you see Christ in the New Testament, think Messiah, Messiah. It means anointed one, one who is anointed by God, by the Holy Spirit to carry out God's work. You think of the kings and how they were anointed from the time of David and so forth. They were anointed, empowered by the Spirit of God to accomplish the will of God. Well, this is the Christ, the sinless Christ, the sinless anointed one. And we're going to see him anointed in chapter 4 of Matthew as he is anointed in the Jordan River. The Spirit of God descends upon him and empowers him from that point on to carry out the great work of redemption to give hints of the new creation as he heals and as he removes blindness and as he raises the dead and as he allow and as he causes lame cripples to walk and jump like deer as we read about in the old testament this is all just a foretaste of the new creation when there will be no more blindness there will be no more disease and cancer and death all comes from this anointed messiah anointed with the Spirit of God to accomplish the plan and will of God. Thirdly, he is not just Jesus, the Christ, but thirdly, notice in the text, he is the son of David. He is the son of David. I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 with me, please. 2 Samuel chapter 7. You remember the context, if I remind you, that David approached the Lord and said that he wanted to build a house for the Lord. David dwelt in a nice palace, and, well, the temple was really a tabernacle. Wasn't a whole lot to look at. David wanted to build a house for the Lord. And we'll pick it up in verse 8. 
Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Isn't it interesting that he turns the table? God, I want to make you a house. God turns around and says, I'm going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now we know that this immediate fulfillment came in Solomon. Because if you keep reading after this chapter and so forth, Solomon is the one to build the temple. And it's magnificent. And it's, it's one of the wonders of the ancient world. And so listen to how he describes Solomon. But also we find hints of a descendant much farther down the road. Look at verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And we know that this is referring to Solomon and the sinful kings that come after Solomon. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so even though Solomon would come and build the house, As God had planned, yet this dynasty, this royal house of David would continue even past Solomon and past his sons and past all of his sons. And the ultimate fulfillment of this promise will come in the final son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon came and he built a palace that was pleasant to look at, but it was eventually destroyed The Lord Jesus Christ, as the greater son of David, has come and he has built, begun to build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. Solomon's temple could be destroyed. The church, this structure, cannot be destroyed. It will be established forever and the throne will be established forever. And so when Matthew opens up this way, the son of David... All the Jews in in Matthew's day would have just, their jaws would have dropped in realization that this is the son of David. This is the one who will reign forever over the kingdom of God. This is no small theme in the Old Testament. We all like to think of Isaiah 9 during the Christmas season. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast. 
and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's all over. Skip a few chapters. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. We read, Then a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse, indicating that in the future, the stump of Jesse, the, the, the tree of Jesse, if you will, will be cut down. And we see that at the end of the Old Testament. But the, the people are in captivity and then finally released from captivity. They come into their own land, but they're still slaves to their sin and eventually overtaken by the Romans. And what happens out of this stump springs up this shoot. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Why? Because he is the anointed one, the Messiah, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. But you have it there that this same one will be from the stump of Jesse. And we know that Jesse was David's father. Moreover, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, on that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will seek him and his resting place will be glorious. A son of Jesse, a son of David will arrive on the scene of human history and it's not just Israel that will seek him. We are told even in Jeremiah 23 that the nations will seek this son of David. Moreover, in Ezekiel chapter 37, we read these words. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I raise up a righteous branch of David, he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is what he will be named. Yahweh, our righteousness. Ezekiel 34. I will set up over them one shepherd... My servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And finally, Ezekiel 37, verse 24. My servant David will be king over them, and there will be one shepherd for all of them. They will follow my ordinances and keep my statutes. They will live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They will live in it forever with their children and grandchildren, and my servant David will be their prince forever. So when Matthew opens up this way, this is not just an introduction. This is a heavenly announcement that he's here. He's arrived. God has fulfilled his word. He's fulfilled his promise. And as we're going to see, as the son of David, what's interesting is that we see in Matthew's gospel the nations coming to seek this son of David, this king. In the very next chapter, we're going to see these wise men from the east, part of the nations from the east, come to worship the son of David. We're going to see this Canaanite woman later on in chapter 15 inquiring, wanting to see the Christ, wanting to see him. He's also not just the son of David, but notice last in verse 1, he is the son of Abraham, the son 
of Abraham. You remember that promise in Genesis chapter 12, then again reiterated in Genesis 15 and 17, but this is the, just, this is the promise. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then in chapter 15, the Lord says to Abraham, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then again, finally, listen to this word from Genesis 17. God says to Abraham, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. And listen to this. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Paul the Apostle gets all of these promises and prophecies and these co this covenant with Abraham, and he puts it like this in Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Abraham was promised three things you know. Land, people, and to be a universal blessing. And all of this is fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. You see, again, like so much of the Bible, there is a temporary fulfillment, and then there is an ultimate fulfillment. The temporary fulfillment was fulfilled in the days of Joshua. He did bring them into the land. They were given a land. But as we read in Hebrews chapter 11... They desired a better country, a heavenly one. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that even in the Old Testament, they weren't just looking to that land. They were desiring a better country, a better city whose builder and maker is God. And this ultimate fulfillment comes through Jesus Christ, who brings us to the new Jerusalem and who will bring us to the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth. So the land promise is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The people promise, the nation's promise comes through Jesus Christ as well. You, Peter says, are a holy nation comprised of people from all tribes and languages and nations fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. And the third promise to Abraham was worldwide blessing through Abraham's family. And it's through Jesus Christ that we who believe in him are blessed 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you see how the promise to Abraham for a land is ultimately fulfilled in and through the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. The promise that kings would come and nations would be born through Abraham's line come ultimate, comes ultimately in Jesus Christ who assembles his people, gathers his church from all around the world and makes them into a holy nation to be a universal blessing, to take his blessing to the ends of the earth. So what this first verse tells us is that God is faithful and we ought to adore God for his faithfulness. He kept his promise. He sent the Messiah. The son of David has come. The son of Abraham has come. But secondly, in this first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew teaches us to admire the providence of God, to admire the providence of God. Notice how the genealogy begins. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Notice how he's going to list several kings, but the only title, the only one who's given the title of king here. Is David. Why? Because Matthew is writing primarily to call our attention to the son of David, the greater Davidic king. And as we have these three sets of 14, from Abraham to David, from David to the deportation to Babylon, and then from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, we have 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. What we see in this genealogy is not meant to put us to sleep. It's meant to cause us to admire the providence of God who overruled all of history in order to bring about his promised Messiah. I mean, you you, you read the stories and it's tempting, isn't it, to go into the, the details of each of these people. Abraham, sinner. Isaac, following in his steps. Jacob. And then you have Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. A horrible account of prostitution in Genesis chapter 38. And yet God ruled over all of that to bring about the Messiah. Adultery, as we continue in the second paragraph. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In other words, he doesn't just say Bathsheba. He says he was another man's, she was another man's wife. Matthew is being provocative here. First of all, he's listing women, which was unknown in that day. But he, he's highlighting these, there's four women mentioned in this whole genealogy three of whom were sexually immoral, one of whom had what one commentator literally said was a shady night at the feet of 
um, it, was, it was Ruth, right? You know, when you read that account, it's like, well, she, I mean, there's no account of any you know, sexual immorality, but why in the world is she sleeping down at the guy's feet? So it was just a weird account. So he calls attention to these four women, three of which sexually immoral, and all these other people, wicked to the core, depraved, adulterous, all the way down to the wicked kings after Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh. So what happens in the genealogy is kind of like a, an N, as one commentator described it. From Abraham to David, it's looking great. And then from David afterwards, it plummets. And then we begin, we begin to build our hope again in this third set of 14 after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah and Zerubbabel and so forth, all the way to Jesus, who is called Christ. And so all the generations from Adam to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And it's interesting because we see the providence of God ruling over all these generations of sexually immoral people, adulterers, idolaters. I mean, you name the sin and you can probably find it in one of these names. And yet God overruled it all to bring about the birth of his son. And notice how he announces the birth of the son, the coming of the son. Verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Notice that he does not say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. He goes out of his way to say that Joseph was the husband of Mary and Jesus was born of Mary, who is called Christ. Jesus did not come from this Joseph. We're going to see that it was the Holy Spirit by his power who, like in Genesis 1, hovered over the face of the waters, hovers over the womb of this young virgin, and we have the immaculate conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's interesting here is that, again, he seems to be focusing in on the fact that this is David's son, David's descendant, He goes out of his way three times to mention 14, 14, 14. He's using what rabbis knew as gematria, which was a method of interpreting the Hebrew scriptures by computing the numerical value of words based on, those, on their constituent letters. And what's interesting is 14, 14, 14. Number 14 is the number of David. In the Hebrew, Dalet, Vav, Dalet. When you total up the numbers, it's 14. And so it could be a coincidence, but we don't believe in coincidences. The providence of God here, seen in all of history, bringing about the son of David, now when it comes time to announce the coming of the son of David, highlights this 14, 14, 14. It's just God's way of saying, 
This is the son of David. David, David, David. He's here. He's arrived. God has kept his word. He has kept his promise. This is him. So we are taught by Matthew to admire the providence of God in bringing about the son of David through a long line of sinners. And yet he, the sinless one, came to save sinners. I just want to point out in mentioning these four ladies, not only were they, most of them, sexually immoral, broken, but they were all non-Jews. They were all non-Jews. And so even in this first chapter, we are given a hint that God will come for the Gentiles as well, the non-Jews as well. Well, thirdly, in this first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew teaches us to revere the power of God. Yes, admire the providence of God, overruling all of history, bringing about the son of David. Yes, marvel at the faithfulness of God who has kept his promise. But thirdly, Matthew teaches us to revere the power of God. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before they had sexual relations, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Matthew calls attention to the power of God here. The the power, as we read about in Luke, the power of the Most High overshadowing Mary and implanting there, if you will, the Christ child. But it's interesting here. Engagements in the ancient world were equivalent in our day to marriage. In other words, to be engaged back then was to be regarded as married. And so you weren't to live, you weren't to live, every, you could enjoy all the benefits except for intimacy and sexual relations that came at the consummation, at the wedding. But to be betrothed, society viewed you as married, essentially. And can you imagine what's going on here? I mean, Matthew has just mentioned four women in the genealogy who were questionable in their sexual immorality and behavior. And now he introduces another woman who would have been questioned in her day. Does she fall in line with all these other ladies? Well, Matthew tells us immediately no, but that's not the immediate thought Joseph had. Joseph, can you imagine? I don't know what he, he was a carpenter, but imagine coming home from work or coming in and discovering that Mary's pregnant and he knows it's not his baby. He knows it's not his child. And you can imagine the flood of thoughts. We're told that he's a just man. He's a godly man. And it's interesting and and wonderful that the Lord God Almighty had entrusted his son to a righteous man here to be his earthly father. But you can imagine the thoughts. I mean, put yourself in Joseph's sandals. What do I do? I can't. No, I can't. No, she didn't. No. She... What, what, what did she do? 
just from the Holy Spirit. And before all the account, Matthew goes out of his way to say that she was with child from the Holy Spirit. And so we see in the very first chapter, we are confronted with the triune God, the Father ruling over all of history, the Son coming into this world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so again, it, it, the, more, the more you study these things, the more you see the, how the Bible you know, is put together. We're immediately drawn to the beginning, right? The book of the Genesis of the heavens and the earth. And as he begins this way, what do we find in the Old Testament? We find the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, eventually resulting in creation 1.0. And as we come to the New Testament, the genesis of Jesus Christ, we are confronted with that same Spirit bringing about the Christ child in the womb of this young virgin, ultimately initiating and inaugurating a new creation. This is the power of God here, displayed in the Spirit hovering over Mary and bringing this eternal one from heaven to enter time. This is why you should cherish the power of God. Well, lastly, in this chapter, first chapter in the New Testament, Matthew teaches us to treasure the love of God. To treasure the love of God. Look at the account. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved, purposed, determined to divorce her quietly. It's interesting. He doesn't say being a compassionate man or a merciful man. He was a just man, a man who did what was right. That's who he was. One of the commentators called this righteous mercy, righteous compassion. Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he could have. In his reaction, in his anger, in his frustration, he could have called the, the whole town to publicly shame Mary. But he was unwilling to put her to shame. This is God at work in this man, willing and working for his good pleasure. But he resolved to divorce her quietly. It wasn't going to be a big public thing. It was just going to happen behind the scenes. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, as his mind raced, as his thoughts ran wild, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, here it is again, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This happened in a dream when he was asleep. Still thinking about all this. When am I going to divorce her quietly? How am I going to tell my parents? How are, we, how are we going to face the public? He falls asleep and this angel comes to him and says, Stand down. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. I want you to, you're to marry her still. But I want you to know that 
the baby inside of her is from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And he will be a son, not a daughter. He'll be a son. And you shall call his name Jesus or Joshua, Jesus. Why? You know, in the Bible, names have significance. Abraham was the father of a multitude of nations. Jesus means Yahweh saves. He will save his people from their sins. That's the announcement. Now, it's amazing because we see Joseph follow through with pure obedience here. I mean, again, this is real history. What would you do if you, were, you had that kind of a dream? Would you act on it? Well, the Lord, again, who rules over providence, ensured that Joseph acted on it. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Here in the very first chapter of the New Testament, this book that is given to us as a guide, as a manual for discipleship, again, we're to take what we have in Matthew and go and disciple the nations all around the world, here in this city. In order to do that, he has to introduce the one that we're following. And he is Jesus. And the fundamental purpose for which he came is to save, to save his people from their sins. This highlights the intention, the purpose of God in sending us a savior. He will save his people from their sins. He will not, as we studied the past 12 weeks, he will not just make salvation possible. He will actually save his people from their sins. The word from there in the Greek is apo. It means away from. You see, this is the son of David. This is the, jo- the new Joshua who has come to deliver the people of God out of sin. This is the greater exodus theme that we're going to see throughout Matthew's gospel. He will save his people from their sins. Joshua, uh, Moses came and he delivered God through him delivered the people out of Egypt. And here, the son of David will lead his people on a conquest away from sin. And we know this to be away from the punishment of sin, away from the power of sin, and eventually from the very presence of sin. That's why he came. He will save. He will not fail. He will save his people from their sins that which makes them guilty before God, that which renders them doomed before God. He will save them. He will rescue them. Friends, this is what God sent us, a savior. He didn't, he didn't send us a life coach or a motivational speaker. He sent someone to save you and to save me. Here in the very first chapter, yes, we are confronted with the faithfulness of God, the providence of God, the power of God, and the love of God, but we are also confronted with your greatest problem and my greatest problem. And it's our sin that renders us guilty in the eyes of a holy God. And God sent us a savior, one to rescue you. This tells us in the very first chapter to break These 400 years of silence, these 400 years of silence are broken by the fact 
that you cannot save yourself. You need a savior. You need one to deliver you, to bring you out of your sin. You can't do it. And that's what this son of David has come to do. Now notice verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So if you want to divide chapter 1, you can divide chapter 1 into two portions. 1 to 17, the faithfulness of God. 18 to 25, fulfillment. Faithfulness and fulfillment. That's what this chapter is all about. He, all this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So all this is rooted in the promise of God, the word of God. All of this is rooted in what God has said. I mean, think about the themes we've already seen in this first chapter of the New Testament. The faithfulness of God, the power of God, the providence and sovereignty of God, the power of God, the love of God in sending us the Savior. We see the Trinity at work bringing about the birth of the Messiah and also the word of God. Verse 22, this was to fulfill what the word, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew takes the time to translate it for us. This means God with us takes us back to the time of Isaiah and Ahaz. And Syria and Israel had threatened to overcome Judah, where Ahaz was king. And the Lord calls Ahaz through Isaiah to ask for a sign. And Ahaz puts up this like false humility. He's like, nah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ask for a sign. And Isaiah, God through Isaiah follows up and says, well, you're gonna get a sign anyways. And it's this, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And there's debate whether there was any kind of fulfillment of a son who came through a virgin or one who was perceived to be a virgin in the days of Ahaz. But ultimately we know because as we learn in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, these prophets in the Old Testament, they spoke things that sometimes they didn't even understand. But as Peter says, they were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through the Holy Spirit that has come. In other words, Peter's hermeneutic is that he says, we as apostles who are given the Spirit have the authority to interpret the Old Testament. And what Matthew's doing here, as this scribe who has been trained in the kingdom of God, Matthew 13, 52, this, this, this scribe who's been trained in the kingdom of heaven draws out this old treasure and says, this is all in fulfillment of God's word. The virgin shall conceive, how? By the power of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And notice how the chapter ends. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. There was no intimacy, no relations 
until she had given birth to a son. And he called, I love this, he, Joseph, he called his name Jesus. Think of the titles of Christ in this chapter. The names, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the Savior, and he is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God is with us. Matthew is drawing out treasures from the Old Testament and showing their newness in light of Christ and his coming. I want you to note that each of his names and each of his titles gives us an understanding of different aspects or angles of the gospel. In other words, as the son of David, Jesus came to rule you. Jesus came to reign over you. He came to conquer your enemies. Every one of your enemies, he came to conquer. Sin, death, the devil, your king has come to conquer on your behalf, Christian. Every one of his names and titles has relevance to your life. Every one of them. As the Christ, as the Messiah, he is the anointed one who came to carry out the work of the Father empowered by the Holy Spirit and to give you the Spirit. Again, when we look at those early chapters in the book of Acts, Peter says that when Jesus ascended on high, he was given the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then now he sends that Spirit to his people to empower them to do the work God has called them to do. So as the Messiah, you go to him as one who has the fullness of the Spirit of God so that you are not left dry, you are not left weary, you are not left weak. Go to him as the anointed one. Go to him as the son of David. But also, he is the son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, and he came to bring worldwide blessing to all peoples of the earth. Blessing of not just having a nice day. I hope you have a blessed day. I hope that what you mean by that, whenever you say that, is not, I hope you have, you know, nothing, you know, slightly bad happened today to you. The Bible's definition of blessing is having the favor of Almighty God upon your life. And he will never turn away from doing good to you. That's what it means to be blessed. And that's what Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, has come to bring. What, I I just, I want you to consider As we close, the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promises, and I want you to consider how the identity and offices and titles of the Lord Jesus Christ and how they relate to your deepest and truest needs. You are a sinner. Here's the Savior. You are under a curse. Here's the son of Abraham who came to bring God's blessing to your life. You are ruled by sin and the devil. Here's the son of David who came to conquer sin and the devil. Everything he is, is everything you need. All that he is, is everything you need. There is no need, no lack, 
no deficiency in us that is not ultimately and sufficiently met by Him. Nothing. There's, no, there's nothing about your life, no need, no flaw, no failure, no deficiency that is not, or for which He is not the ultimate answer. You're guilty, He's the answer. You're headed to hell, He's the answer. Cry out to Him, just as that woman did in Matthew 15, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. And we are told that of all who come to Him, He will not cast any one of them out. He is God with us. How does this happen? He is God with us. If you think about it, historically, as God in the flesh, He is God with us, who is with us presently, and He is God with us forever. This happened by Him going to the cross. The only way He could be God with us is if He was forsaken by His Father. On the cross, as we're going to see, this same one who was born Emmanuel will, at the end of his life, cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that he could be God with you. He was abandoned by his father and exposed to the fullness of God's fury and wrath so that he could be Emmanuel, God with you. God with you as your Messiah, as your King, as your ultimate blesser, as your ultimate Savior. That's how he became God with us, presently and forever. And so, friends, this first chapter calls you and I to adore the faithfulness of God, to admire the providence of God, to revere the power of God, and to treasure the love of God.